Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales and our series uh, Characters in Livestock. We are this week, as always, sponsored by Harbro, um, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. And uh, still looking at characters in livestock, this week we have a rather unique guest who's made his mark on both sides of the Atlantic, Gordon Phillip from Kansas City. Gordon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and thanks for having me from someone from the Hill of Mormon in Aberdeenshire. I'm honored. Well, Gordon, I know that, uh, uh, that now, in your later years, you've earned massive respect in the USA cattle business, but your roots are in Scotland, as you just mentioned. And uh, tell us a bit more about where you were born in Scotland and, and, and what was your time like as a young man then? Uh, well, uh, I grew up in Strickland. Went to school there. Strickland's about 36 miles north of Aberdeen mm-hmm. and six miles from the wild North Sea. Sometimes we get a taste of salt water on our lips when we're setting up wet stooks. <laughs> and um, I, I, uh, I grew up soon after the war, of course, and uh, it was pretty tough times back then. Mm-hmm. I was six in a family of seven. And um, I knew that uh, I would have to go somewhere sometime down the road. Okay. Well, this podcast tends to draw a lot of audiences, either from uh, the, the UK and particularly Scotland or from the USA. But I'm not sure we've had one, one guest on that warrants so much interest from both sides of the pond before. So let's assume that when you're talking about Scotland, that you give us enough detail that the Americans will understand it, and and vice versa, I guess. So that, uh, we can cover both <laughs> cases. Uh, well, I can, I, yes, I can tell you that where I grew up was about as far north as um, Juneau, Alaska, okay. halfway up Hudson Bay. And back then we had hellacious storms compared to what we have today. Uh-huh. We would go out sometimes and probe for our sheep flock with long sticks. <laughs> In this snow. And uh, let me tell you, uh, I was glad. I was thinking I'd go to Australia where the sun shines most of the time, but I finished up in the United States. And uh, <laughs> I was involved, of course, at the early age. I started showing lambs at about 9, 10 years old at the Stricken Show. Mm-hmm. I remember the Achy Fair very well, big long strings at Clydesdales lined up there for the Clydesdale market because everything was handled by horses back then. We didn't get our first tractor in and Alice Chalmers came in a convoy from from uh, America, I'm sure. <laughs> Wouldn't have come from anywhere else. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, 3,600 ships were sunk by the submarines by the Germans that were bringing material and and different things to <clears throat> Roosevelt to support in Britain very heavily at the time and uh, we were lucky to get a tractor in the mid uh, late 40s I think the 50s of course uh, I had I was getting into showing cattle my father showed Clydesdale he's a, he, <laughs> his best saying was fat's a pretty color you know and uh, I soon learned that you'd better have ca- cattle or sheep or horses in condition if you were going to be marketing them That's very and uh, he was he was a good instructor in that area I was very lucky to have wonderful parents when I grew up and always encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do I okay. was fitting and showing cattle for people all over the Northeast basically before I got into the registered program okay and and as we call a registered program there's a couple of of course shortcuts in the 
livestock world in Scotland, one of those being, of course, the uh, Scottish Young Farmers Organization, who are a fantastic institution. And uh, I gather you would be involved in, in young farmers from an early age, uh, um, Gordon. I was indeed. I was lucky enough to represent the, the Scotland in some of the international competitions. Um, and uh, the Scottish Young Farmers Association was a huge, it, it allowed you to meet people all over the country and uh, it allowed you to, uh, if, you, if you wanted to, you could advance your knowledge on and meet so many of the cattle breeders around. And I was winning a lot of the different shows, uh, judging competitions and the young farmers and met a lot of wonderful people there. We also have on the call one of our good old favorites and, and friends here, uh, Dr. Bob Hoke. Bob, welcome to the call there. And just dive in there and give your uh, understanding of how the Young Farmers Movement compares maybe to, to what you guys have in, in the university uh, in the U.S. Well, I, I mean, that's what I was just going to ask because, uh, I mean, I grew up with FFA and it made a huge, future farmers of America. And it was it made a huge difference in my life. But, you know, Gordon, I was involved with uh, – uh, National 4-H judging contest for about 24 years over here. And I was wondering, do you ever officiate any of the uh, judging contests over here? Uh, were you at the American Royal or anything? Oh, back in the back in the, in the 60s, of course, when I came over here, yes. I was in very very much involved in, the, well, international, international training, international judges. Don Good had his, we had the Missouri state university brought their judging classes up uh -huh. kansas state university nebraska iowa all came to casey shorthorns because they knew we'd have some of the best stock and i knew what they needed and and mm -hmm. we would work back then with the coaches and uh, that's a lot of those college professors of course were judging so it was very important to me to get my cattle seen before they even went to the show. Sure. There you go. If, if I can just step back in there again, we can maybe take this a little bit more chronologically. And, and obviously in Young Farmers, Young Farmers movement starts, I think, when you're in your early teens and moves through into, into your middle, late 20s. But you had a, a mentor of, of what Taylor is one of your mentors. And can you tell me a bit more about him? And there's a lot of Taylors from that area up there. Which, which family would he be? What Taylor was from Florth. And uh, he was a great guy. He he ran a big commercial cattle operation. He had Lester sheep and shorthorn cattle at the time. And uh, Meg Taylor married his daughter, married uh, one of the Andersons, I'm sure, after I left. But uh, one of the Anderson boys, the, the shorthorn people from Care, I think. Yeah. And um, what taught me a lot about uh, large runs of cattle. He had a he had a place at Troop right in the North Sea. And he ran about 200 commercial cows up there. And that was my first experience really in seeing big numbers of commercial cows wintered outside. And I thought, this has to be better than mucking bios out every day, twice a day. <laughs> and uh, it sure made it a, a lasting impression on me. Uh, and John Grant and Skelly Marno, um, uh, another Angus breeder, spent a lot of time with the young farmers' operations, and he knew that I was very interested in registered Angus cattle. Mm -hmm. He spent lots of time with me, tell me about. And his brother, of course, was Donald Grant from New Zealand, who was also a prominent Angus breeder. Mm -hmm. 
certainly both with Scottish Connections, the two of those, and been discussed before on this podcast. And going to the shows in your early days, then, we're going back to, I mean, some of these animals originally, you said about the tractor, but some of these animals would, would go to the show on foot straight from the farm, wouldn't they? That'd be right. True. We would we would certainly drive our cattle to certain shows, New Deer shows, Mintler shows, which were local shows about 10, 15 miles apart. And there wasn't any traffic then, you know, there was hardly any cars. So it wasn't too big a job. And uh, I remember at the Stricken show, I'd been showing a young foal for my dad, Clydesdale, and it rose up and clipped me right in the cheek. So they took me to the first aid station and poured a little iodine, didn't stitch anything up then, just poured straight iodine in there. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and we had um we had someone opening that show in there in the first that was a hot day and he uh, Harry Lauder it was actually and he was in there having a dram in the first aid station. <laughs> <laughs> That's what first aid is all about at some of those northern agricultural shows and some of these you'd go the night before I guess if you got to walk ten or ten or a dozen miles to get you there early in the morning you'd you'd go. Oh yeah, we'd night. take them a day before absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But as a judge, it'd be great to. Have- have cattle walk 10 miles before you see them, you'd figure out which ones are sounding not pretty quick, I'm that's, guessing. That's true, you <laughs> would, and you'd walk a bit of fat off them on the way, maybe on the way back, possibly, <laughs> and yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the big shows, when we go to the Edinburgh Fat Stock Show, the Aberdeen Fat Stock Show, we had a train station about a half mile from our farm, and uh, we would we would t- put the cattle on the train, take them to Edinburgh and Aberdeen and places like okay. that. Okay, yep. Yeah, I mean, that was commonplace for Perth as well, and we'll go on to that in a second. But um, your Scottish Young Farmers activities would of judging, as you said, and, and the, the fitting for showing as well, and that would get you noticed by uh, Alex Ogg. And uh, you can tell us a bit about how Alex took you under his wing. You're one of the f- only a handful of people that I know who actually knew uh, Alex Ogg, and we're actually doing a podcast on him uh, himself in, in a couple of weeks. We're, we're talking to his grandson, Forbes McDonald. but uh, Alex is, is one of those names in the cattle business that was absolutely legendary, and uh, and you're a man that, that, that got to know him. Back then, of course, Alec was working for some of the big operations, dirt and all these places, and I didn't know him at all. I just knew he was a hell of a good cattle fitter. And I was very fortunate, of course, with Donald Grant and Scully Marno that wanted me to, sorry, not Donald, John. John, Donald was in, in New Zealand, but uh, John Grant was involved in the young farmers and told me that I should go and he'd get me up there to work for Alec Ogg. And he, Alec had just got the lease from uh, Candy Craig on the Baham farm sure. portion of it. And I'll tell you. Alec was a taskmaster. Mm. He uh, he come up there with nothing, basically, other than his knowledge in fitting cattle, and he was a master at it. Mm-hmm. He taught me all kinds. Of, I'd shown and and fitted and clipped a hell of a lot of cattle before that, of course, for people around the area. And uh, then I got to work for Alec, and he put the finishing touches on it. It was yeah. all done with hand, hand clippers then, yeah. hand shears then. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the- I was lucky enough to take cattle to... Uh, the Smithville, I won the Smithville show. I wasn't the champion, but he was a reserve first cross champion in 1958. Right. And uh, that was a great experience. Sure. And uh, Gordon, can I ask you a quick question? Didn't Alex hit like the triple crown? Of, was, he fit like the champion international. That's of, a little wow. later on. When I went to Strathdon, Alex only had about 
though. He didn't have very many cows, obviously. He had just he just finished fitting the Smithfield blue a blue roan heifer he got from Colhane up there, and he just won Edinburgh or Smithfield with that. Okay. When I went at about fifty eight mm. and fifty seven or fifty eight, and and I can remember very well. Uh, at Candy Craig, of course, they did a huge shooting operation. You go out in the dark at five o'clock to pick up cabbages for the bulls, mm -hmm. put them in a sack, and that bloody cold water running down the back of your neck with a little skitting up in the dark. I'll tell you, you better be, you better be wide awake. <laughs> <laughs> it was great fun. But you know, when I, I remember later on, Alec did go to. Well, it was a, he, he did win win at Perth later on. It, it was. I'll, I'll, I'll probably come in on that one, uh, um, Bob, for your information. And again, we'll pick this up on a later podcast. But yes, I think it was in the middle sixties where he actually won. He won Perth and Palermo and Chicago all in the same year, bringing cattle out, which is is a feat that's never been equal. That's probably, correct. Probably never will be equal. And that was sort of later times. I'm sure you knew him when he came over to do that. Um, uh, Gordon and another person that again, if I count the legends of the cattle show world in the UK, I'd probably come up with four names. And, and, and the second one on the sheet will be uh, Gordon Blackstock. And uh, again, you worked, you fitted cattle certainly for, at Perth for, for Gordon, didn't you, when, when he was at, at, no, Bapt at Bapton? Not necessarily Perth. It was just helping them at the, high, at the various shows around. You know, these boys showed at all, the, all of the shows. And I was lucky enough to know Gordon. And even, even when I came here, he stayed with me here so many times. And it was so unfortunate that he passed away as soon as he did. But he had a good connection with a fellow by the name of Wilbur, Wilbur Donaldson at Lueda Farms. And uh, I was fortunate enough when the bull, Bob Adams bull, Plam's benefactor, came along. Okay. Uh, we got that bull at my, at my farm here in Kansas City. Did you? Okay. Yeah. operation there. I'll tell you what, he was, a, he was just a, a monster of a cattleman in Canada. And I mean, people would send their children from all over the world to uh, intern and learn from him. Uh, I mean, he was he was the guy. He was really, really well thought of. And he trained so many people. It, it was unbelievable. And we're talking Wilbur Donaldson here, yes. Yep. Okay. Uh, well, that, that necessarily came along with winning. I mean, everybody... And it happens when you start winning everything that uh, you get offered all kinds of people from different places. They want to know you've got some secret method. Well, I'll tell you what, when you run into Alec Og, he would have a brush in each hand. <laughs> that was his secret message. <laughs> that was his secret. He'd have them all yeah. ready better than most people. I've certainly done some research on, on, on Alec, and you said a man that had to, it, it would give good advice out as well, but he wasn't, he wouldn't just hand it out to, to anybody, I don't think. And, and going back again to uh, Gordon Blackstock, of course, would have been at Bapton at the Shortons, but I think um, Blackstock was also involved in Angus as well. Um, but. Uh, I've seen pictures of him with all sorts of animals. He was a man that knew his stock across across the different breeds, wasn't he? Blackstock, I think he came from Ireland originally, That's but right. I'm not sure. But he was uh, he was a promoter, you know, and, and he was a gore. The guy never slept very much, I don't think. And he was at Colrossi before he went to Bolt, to Bapton. Okay. And um, and just just like most of the guys back then, Gordon Black, and I think he was given the MBE actually for his job that he did with the cattle. And uh, but I had a, I had a great connection showing at Perth. I was one of well, I was working with Alec Og, John Grant of Skilly Marno, 
asked me to help him with, he's the one that got me dogs, help him with setting up a, a string of bulls for the perth sales and um, getting them ready and everything. So I went down and I clipped them all out. Uh, that was the year that uh, Herman Purdy was judging. Okay, 61. I went in there and had three firsts for John Grant at Scully Marnell. Okay. Under, Her under Herman. And uh, that was a great relationship that struck up. Even he didn't know me and I didn't know him. I knew that, uh, like Alec Ogg had told me, this guy likes perfection in his cattle. Mm -hmm. Don't leave anything out of place. And uh, well, Alec was showing a bull that he sold for 3800 I think, called Edwin of Tinto. He may have picked up from a Dirk cow or something like that mm -hmm. that did very well. And uh, I, John Grant had never had three first at Perth in his life, and he was so tickled. And that's, if, any, if I'd done anything at Perth, that certainly made him happy. Well, again, <laughs> um, you're talking, if I picked out the half a dozen top breeders, or top cattle men in the world, and we're not talking cattle breeders, but cattle men, and uh, Herman Purdy, of course, is in that list as well, probably right up there. And uh, to show under him and, and, and get it right, you would, uh, you would yeah. have, to, have to have him brought out well. I'm yes. just curious. Whenever he came over to Perth, and he worked so fast in the ring, yeah, and played so fast. Were you guys ready for that? I mean, how? I mean, did you guys know that whenever he started? Did you know that in advance, or did you just kind of get caught up off guard by him going so fast? <laughs> I think I can tell you about Herman Purdy because I won so much under him. It's just unbelievable when I look back at my some of my catalogs and everything. That Herman was. Uh, he liked perfection. He always showed with the when in Scotland. You always showed with a white coat on, collar and tie, and you know you did. You had your cattle presented properly for him, not for you, but for him. And uh, Alec Hogg had trained me a lot about what time of the day you would be going to ring. Of course, you have to realize the classes were so huge then. Yeah. What you wanted to do was get into the short lead. Mm -hmm. You, you, the judge with the classes were so big, big that he'd be walking around the judge and he would be pulling what he wanted to save for the for the short leap. Yep. Getting into the short leap was the key. And then, of course, he shot me up to first right away. I didn't know which end of the damn ring to go to, but there was always <laughs> assistance there. You know, I was a kid, you understand. And uh, the next class I went in, I just grabbed the halter of the next bull and I think uh, I had to get that one ready and in the ring and I had three young bulls in there get first every time, and that was a great experience for me. And these would be black cat, black cattle. Would they go and be Angus, or would they be? be, be for, for oh, they were Angus. Angus. John Grant had yeah. a wonderful herd at Skelly Marno. Yeah. and of course our neighbour was where the Gammer line came from, Sandy Biddy at Banks. So I was surrounded by by good Angus cattle when I grew up. Sure. But shorthorns is where you would you would major, and of course you'd show shorthorn bulls at Perth as well, I guess. And back at one time, the shorthorn and the Angus would be competing very much against each other. Maybe the Angus would have more of the numbers, but they would be they'd have to split the split the show up because it just became so many cattle, didn't they? Well, no, there there were there were so, so many days for the Angus and so many days for the shorthorn, of course. Mm -hmm. In Upper Mill, uh, there was lots of shorthorn breeders back then. Yeah. Jimmy Donner at Upper Mill, of course, and he was a big, big shorthorn breeder. Cal Rossi was a little further up. They were at Nig and mm -hmm. in Vanessa Shire. But uh, what Taylor, of course, had a shorthorn herd. He most sold most of his bulls at Aberdeen. I'd help him fit his bulls for that. Mm -hmm. okay. But um, Blackstock's the one that got me into the shorthorns is because he needed a, a good fitter for um, 
for this American operation that I finished up with and that I came to in Chicago. Let's go on to that then. And it was obviously at Perth where, where these guys caught your eye and, and the Canadian cattlemen that we talked about as well. And between Alex Ogg and, and Gordon Blankstock and, and Wib Donaldson, they arranged for you to make this move to America and it's forced to build a world-class shorthorn herd, wasn't it, for, for a very interesting man who had uh, seemingly a lot of money, uh, Gordon? Oh, yeah. You know, growing up in the north of Scotland, <laughs> in hard times right after the war, you, nobody had any money back then. Of course, you have to realize in Scotland, 90% of the people had 10% of the money and 10% of the people had 90% of the money. <laughs> so so when you hit someone like Otto Rose, who had the biggest cars, the biggest hats, the biggest cigars, and the biggest uh, diamonds, it was just an interesting change. And I really, I really, Blackstock actually flipped a coin between Australia and, and, and the United States. I had family in both places. And uh, I was really keen on running a big operation in Australia. And we had uh, a big operation then. You know, there was only 12, 13 million people in Australia back then. Mm -hmm. And the operate, government would pay your way over there and take over operations in the north of Australia. And a lot of my young friends from the Young Farmers Associations uh, um, in Scotland at that time went to New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Blackstock talked me in. They paid me pretty well to go, come over and, and start this operation for Otto Gross. And Otto Gross was the biggest mink breeder in the world. And uh, he had a son. He, he was, in the, they were close to Chicago, about 30 miles west of Chicago. And uh, he built this fancy operation. And there were a lot of Scots boys there then. And I worked and brought over a lot of young Scots lads to work for me, at, uh, both at uh, Gross's place and here at Casey Shorthorns. Okay. And they're good. they're good working. They were very good workers. They just had a little problem handling a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I interject a little bit? Because whenever you know the, I wrote that Shorthorn book and stuff, I mean, all through all the universities would all have a Scotch herdsman. I mean, and mm -hmm. all these fancy places would have a Scotch herdsman and manager, and it just you just weren't cool, and you just weren't at the top. If you're a rich person, you weren't at the top of your game unless you had somebody from Scotland <laughs> managing your cattle. I mean, it was really quite an interesting thing. Uh, it kind of put, kind of put a hurt on the Americans getting some of the better jobs because they all, everybody wanted somebody from Scotland. It was just a status. Well, Bob, a lot of that would be, of course, because at the time a lot of the good cattle would be coming out of Scotland, and, and so if they're bringing the cattle out, then to bring them, bring a man along with them or a boy along with them from that that area, obviously it made sense. But you're right; they certainly had a great reputation in Scotland for producing some some iconic stockmen, and, and hey, they still do. Well, that's right. I'll tell you whether the people that came over on the ships, the cattle, there wasn't many of them that went back. I'll no. tell you that much. They all, they all got great jobs. <laughs> yeah, and looking back, looking back and listening to one of your podcasts, Bertie Rob was uh, not necessarily. I mean, I never knew him, but I certainly had. I certainly um, noticed what he could do when he had a hand when he was handling cattle. Certainly, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, a, 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 a great cattleman, yeah. as, as was his brother, and in an era when there were a lot of other good cattlemen as well. And, of course, he would be round about Alex Ogg's era. And just remind us, um, Gordon, what year was that when you made that move out, out to, to Chicago? That was the winter of 59. It came to a Letty's terrible snowstorm, and um, and I came to Chicago and had to walk into to the operation at Otto Gross's because... <laughs> the roads were all blocked there too. <laughs> home from home, then, eh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but I didn't have to pull neeps. I didn't have to pull neeps and uh, and and frozen turnips in this country. I was just amazed at the difference. And uh, of course, corn was about a dollar a bushel then, mm -hmm. and it was a real learning experience for me coming into a new country and uh, and start. Of course, I knew all about cattle. And working people and things like that because I had some good training working for Alec Hogg. You get a yeah. You work day and night. <laughs> sure. And Gross himself was a, probably not a farmer, but a tremendous promoter, wasn't he? Tell us a little bit about what you learned from him in the in the way that he marketed what he was doing. I forget how many the thousands of mink he had and uh, hundreds of thousands, but that fortunately was separated quite a ways from where the Shorthorn operation was. He had set up a place to display his mink along with the shorthorn in the shorthorn barn. Right. And he would bring tivils in, which is out of Chicago, and we would dress the cattle and hang beautiful diamonds and, 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 and things like that uh, on the cattle. And he would bring in gorgeous um, models from Chicago to model his coats and his stoles and all the different things that, you make with mink and floodlights everywhere. And we, of course, had the cattle all ready and prepared. And we had a big staff at the time. And Otto would come in there and he'd feed everyone a big dinner. And the, these girls would then display his, his product. And <laughs> Sounds like a is, dirty job, but somebody's like got a, to do it, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, he, wouldn't let those, he wouldn't let those girls go home back to Chicago. He'd put them up in one of the hotels there. And one of my jobs was, be sure they eat something. He said, well, hell, they never ate. And that was actually my first experience going with those girls to see that they ate. They only took pills. And some of them took alfalfa pills, which was kind of interesting to me. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> they didn't need the hell of a lot. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, Otto, Otto was just an absolute... Uh, marketer. He, he marketed these product all over the world. Fur coats were big then, and uh, he wouldn't do too well today, but knowing him, he'd be into something else. Sure, yeah. Can I, can I tell you a really quick story? I was in the, somehow I met a race car driver, a famous race car driver over here one time, and he, and he asked me what business I was in, and he said, well, I was at an auction, a, a fundraising auction and there, there was a woman with a fur coat and i had bid it up to ten thousand dollars because i thought my wife would really have like that fur coat and then it turned out they were selling semen not the fur coat and he was sure glad he didn't end up with the the semen instead of the, <laughs> the fur coat he thought he was bidding on so anyway <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, Gordon uh, Gross became ill, didn't he? And I think it's time for you to make a move. And then you moved on to to a yeah. very prestigious place. Yes, uh, that was Wilbur Donaldson that handled that transition. Uh, he met some other business people here in Kansas City that 
had a few shorthorn cattle and uh, hadn't been doing very well with them, and he asked if I would be interested in taking that over. Okay. And that's what happened, basically. Uh, that would be KC shorthorns, then? Yes. Okay. And you became then, the herd became then a, a force in the shoe ring, for all you say, the cattle weren't that good, but very quickly became a powerful force and uh, won a lot of things there. What, what would you be your big successes when you were there at KC? Go on. Well, looking back at it, I'm just kind of amazed at what we did. My brother came over in 1963, and he helped me with the show string. And he was my a younger brother, than, and uh, he hadn't had much experience, but he wanted to come to America, and he's still here, of course. Mm -hmm. But I had seven international champions in four years, wow. and uh, international show is uh, just phasing out, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the mecca of the of, of the of the cattle breeds and breeders and steers and things like that. You're talking Chicago International? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I didn't start showing at Chicago until I was ready that I knew I could win. Mm -hmm. I'd shown at local shows here, but when I started showing at Chicago, uh, the last four years of Chicago, I had seven international champions. It's not necessarily all grand champions, but <clears throat> they were by a bull I bought from Bob Adam through Gordon Blackstock. Glam's benefactor, who had been champion at birth, he was a bull by Colrossi Dynam, and uh, he had won Perth, he won the Highland, he won the Royal Show, right. and then he came over here through Canada, of course, John Slee at the Horn handled all the exports of our cattle, and uh, he was a great bull. He stamped his calves unbelievably. I have so many nice letters from Bob Adam, mm -hmm. who could write like better than anyone I ever knew. And um, beautiful letters from Bob uh, congratulating me on all of the winnings that I had done in the U.S. with his bull. Excellent. Excellent. No, and he was. But Bob, obviously, to our uninitiated listener here, we've, we've covered Bob on quite a few of our podcasts, but Bob was renowned as an Aberdeen Angus breeder, but like some of those other great legendary breeders of that time of the 50s and 60s, could breed just about anything if it was, you know, daffodils or budgerigars. But uh, so a lot of people don't really recognize the fact that uh, Newhouse did have a good herd of short-horn cattle as well as Angus. And uh, as I said, it was uh, Glam's. And blackface sheep, remember. Blackface sheep and border lesters. When I worked for Alec Auger, I'd be sent down there to... Old Allen. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd pick up some blackface rams for Alec Auger because we ran some sheep up there. For, was it Alec or Gavin? One of them worked for Bob for a while. Both of them did. Okay. Yeah. Both of them did. Gordon, you know, in this time period, I have some old Shorehorn magazines, and I pulled out a few from uh, 67, just kind of random. I mean, he has four-page ads of all these show winners and and uh, doing his production sales. And, and there's a, in the Her Book edition, there's a – I mean, this is a guy that's only 27 years old at this point yeah. and just hasn't been in this country long, and there's a whole feature article written by him on how to run a production sale. <laughs> so that's not bad. Still having them, so, yeah, I think. You still having them, aren't you, Gordon? <laughs> yeah. I, I I wasn't even a citizen then, mm -hmm. but but I I'd been working with uh, I think by 1973 I had I had the honor of being elected the farmer of the year, uh, uh, the state of Missouri, okay. and uh, I thought I better uh, 
I better become a citizen. <laughs> and just, just with those short-ons, it was primarily all short-ons, I suppose, that you would be working with then. Is there a few bulls that stood out? And, Bob, you've got the pictures in front of you, but probably maybe back this one up. Were there a few particular bulls that did the influence to, to, the, to get you to the, to the level you wanted to get to and bulls that sort of stood the test amongst other breeders? Absolutely. I had no restrictions on what I was doing. I bought an interest in Baptin Constructor, of course, from Lueda Farms. Okay. He was there. Mm -hmm. That bull did a great job. Uh, I had a son of Baptin Constructor. And then, of course, we got Glam's Benefactor, who was, he was predominantly a, a bull that could absolutely stamp his progeny, male or female, and it was easy to win with him. Well. It was, <laughs> I was very lucky. And uh, we won, we won everywhere we went, really, at, uh, but one of the interesting things about winning's easy, I think, when I look back at it, it was a lot of work and a lot of fun. But part of the part of the program, what, what I remember best was uh, showing cattle to Denver Stock Show, which replaced basically replaced Chicago yeah. with the International yeah. for Denver Stock Show. And uh, John Wayne had a string of Hereford cattle at the time, and Bob, you would remember his operation yeah, in Arizona. And, uh, we were right across the aisle from John Wayne's cattle with, with Casey Shorten, right across the aisle. Mm -hmm. John Wayne's were in one across the aisle, and I was on the other side with Casey Shorten's. And uh, John Wayne would sit on our show boxes, drink our whiskey, and tell everybody how great his Herefords were. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you what. You can't believe the crowd of people that about trampled my poor shorthorns into the ground to get pictures of John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was certainly one of the highlights of showing shorthorns and being across the aisle from John Wayne's office. Didn't you have like tank and flipper and all kinds of other bulls? Oh yes, uh, yes. We we uh, you know, I was interested in putting some size back into the shorthorns. I didn't get along very well with uh, the system was you know, they were, I called them portable corn cribs. And uh, they couldn't walk. They couldn't They couldn't walk to save a life, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, the cattle were just too fat. In Chicago, like it reminded me of the story my dad said, fat's a pretty color. Well, he'd like to have seen what they were then. They were so damn fat that it just wasn't practical. Sure. So I decided that we're going to change this whole thing. And by winning, if you had looked at our cattle when we won heavily, who are just half as fat as the others. Okay. And and Herman Party, all the college professors were doing the judging back then. And uh, Herman Party was the main judge in the country, of course. He'd judge most of the big shows. And he liked cattle that could walk and move. And uh, my cattle were just, just in good working shape and in perfect bloom all the time. And, of course, we had a lot of hair to work with back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll never forget Charlie Dugan coming in one time and judging on horseback. And Charlie walked the damn cattle, those fat cattle, so they couldn't hardly stand up. They were <laughs> popping with their mouths open. And <laughs> but but that's, that really set us different, set us up a lot differently than the, the establishment. And the establishment, you know, but you put corn, your corn through the damn cattle and got them so damn fat. And prime cattle in the United States, and this got me involved with Wilhelm at Iowa State, Professor, uh, Dr. Wilhelm, who was interested in performance testing. 
And uh, the shorthorn breed was in kind of a lull, a little too short leg. You could stand it, stand it to rear end and scratch the really. And uh, that didn't suit me too well on because we were in the Midwest. And uh, you, I always say you have to have to fit the environment. And have hot, humid weather here. And your cattle have to, of course, survive uh, walking fair distance yeah. to water. And Nebraska, our neighboring state to the book, it's not unusual to see a string of cows walk two and a half, three miles for water mm. twice a day. So uh, that always interested me because winning at the show ring is one thing, but is the operation going to survive down the road in the grassroots? You yeah. have to have your bulls able to work in the grassroots sure. level. Sure. Sure. Well, Clipper King of Bampton, didn't he weigh 2675 or something? He was a big bull. One of the bulls I used, he wasn't necessarily, he was kind of a hybrid Clipper King. He bred some good ones, and he wasn't as consistent a bull as he'd like, but mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to have him to start a pulled herd. And mm -hmm. uh, I was in, I went to Canada, Canada, of course, where there was no showing going on in the remote areas of Canada, and I found a wonderful bull that we called George Giant. He was a son of TPS Cornet leader, Her Harold Tiemann's operation. And that mm -hmm. bull was amazing. He was just a tremendous bull. Pole bull, of course. Homozygous bull. Pole bull. Well, well, well Bapton would be, if I could just jump in there a second, Gordon Bapton would be recognized, or certainly Gordon Blackstock would be recognized as one of the first men to bring the pole gene back into the, into the UK. But that would probably be before, maybe, I would say, middle 50s. Is that or early 50s even, would he be? Yes. He, he, Gordon bought, he brought cattle from Harold Tiemann's operation into... Harold Tiemann uh, was an excellent breeder of uh, and his father. They bred a lot of uh, good pulled shorthorn cattle. They won Chicago a lot. Back then, the pulled cattle was shown separately. Okay. And uh, today, we don't have – they're all together now. You don't, they're mainly all pulled, aren't they, over there now? Pretty much. No, we still have some horn short horns, yes. Okay. But 90, 90% are pole. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty, pretty, pretty strictly pole. Yeah, Bob, Bob, That's right. Bob would have the numbers yeah. there. And if we just move on, uh, time's just slipping on a little bit, but you did, I think when you switched to the performance type of cattle there, the short horn association would, would, were a bit slow to take that up and didn't you sort of try and wind them up a little bit by, by putting the, yeah, actually they wouldn't put the weights on your certificates, didn't you oh. wind them up a little bit? Oh, yeah, it, yeah, I, I, the secretary of the association's brother was the secretary of the Hereford Association. I think they set both breeds back 20 years as far as I'm concerned. And that might be a, a little strong, maybe 10 years, I'm not sure. But, you know, if you don't have a good leader in the, in the business, it's looking outside the box to try and keep up with what might be happening around them. You're going to fall behind real quick. And uh, I asked them to do several things. Uh the bylaws said you couldn't show horn cattle in the polled show at Chicago, but the bylaws didn't say you couldn't show polled cattle in the horn site. So I did that, and that that teed them off pretty big. And um, and then and I won with them too, a polled bull, I won with them in the horn class. But anyway, uh, my father was visiting. My father and mother were visiting from Scotland, and he got to show that bull. He was so happy and proud that he won in Chicago. <laughs> But and then I said to him, I said, we've got to, we've got to get into the performance testing. We had Glenn Butt PRI Performance Registry International, I think it was called back then. Yep. And uh, 
the secretary said, no, we're not going to change. So anyway, uh, Alec Aug had taught me about pedigrees, and I could tell pedigrees. And before computers, that was part of being a good cattleman. You put it all in your mind, and you never forgot yeah. it. Alec could take you back five generations and any cow in any Angus cow in Britain, I think. Mm-hmm. He was so good, especially if they'd won anything, because he was usually at the end of the halter. <laughs> didn't but, you, um, like, start putting uh, weights on your pedigrees because they wouldn't record weights? And I mean... You did all kinds of stuff, didn't you? You were kind of kind of yeah, pushing things. I, yes, I did. I I decided that if I can't get the association to change their mind, I'll just put the weaning weight and the yearling weight as the animal's name, <laughs> and and that that changed things a little, no question. But I mentioned that after ten years of winning all the shows in the United States. I was asked to judge a lot of shows after I retired from showing, and I got interested in Simmental because I had taken shorthorn females, their first calf heifers, actually. I bred them to a bull called Parisian, and I had I had uh, nine bull calves and one heifer calf. The lock of the Irish, uh, okay. but anyway, that that bulls I didn't. I, I was kind of convinced that. Can these Simmentals handle corn like we have an abundance in the United States? Mm-hmm. So I was pouring the corn to these bulls to see if they were see if they would founder. Well, they didn't founder. They only gained over five pounds a day. Right. And and we had uh, Performance Registry International, so only place I could record them at times. And uh, these bulls finished up amazing six or seven of them to Blackwatch Farms okay. uh, because they were in trouble at the time. Uh, they weren't able to keep up with all the registrations and everything, and they turned a lot of the cattle into commercial operations in Oklahoma and Texas and uh, Missouri, even in Nebraska. So they got, they, they got uh, six or seven of those bulls, and then one of them actually was bigger than the rest, and I sent him down to a test station in Oklahoma, and he set a world record for yielding weight. We had just had the world record yearling weight by a Charlet bull, 1,700-and-something, at a year old. And this half Simmental bull by Parisian set a new record at 1,760 pounds. Wow. Okay. And uh, that that was impressive. Hmm. That sold me that I better get busy in that breed. I went to Denver Stock Show and went to the first meeting of Simmental breeders and and joint association, and we were on our way then. Okay. And did you get involved in importing some of these uh, Simmentals yourself? Oh, absolutely. I was well acquainted. I'd been to, been to Europe several times, of course, across the Atlantic way over 100 times. And um, a lot of the times I would go to the Paris show, I'd see those monstrous bulls mm-hmm. there. If any of you have been there, uh-huh. absolutely amazing. And uh, I went to Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and France, and I knew enough shorthorn breeders in Canada. We couldn't bring them directly into the United States okay. at that time. We didn't have quarantine station, yeah. and so we brought them into Canada and uh, uh, through the St. Lawrence River. And and I had cattle. The first shipment was an experimental test program by the Canadian government that brought uh, four or five bulls to their Lacombe University and. I worked very closely with a gentleman with him, Travis Smith, a wonderful old guy. He was a Mormon, and uh, they, uh, he and I go to Montana and all the different north, northern states, and he would offer semen from his bull Parisian, and I would offer to buy all the heifer calves 
that, that were available from that conception okay. by that bull. And he and I traveled months together uh, from sail barn to sail barn to sail barn all over the north part of the United States. And I contracted so many females for bringing them into. We'd ran 1,400 head of cows at the time. And uh, moving along on to Texas without even just watering them, water them here, feed them, and then move them on to Texas because there was such a demand for the Simtal cattle. Okay. You have to realize at the time, this is so important, Bob, you would remember well, everything was white-faced then. Um, Only problem with the white-faced cattle, she didn't milk. And mm -hmm. uh, the Simtal bull just fit them beautifully uh, to give them a lot of size and and uh, give them a lot of milk, which they never had the calves. I can tell you, I've had 100 XIT, 10 in Texas, uh, Hereford cows, and those damn things. They give her calf about three sucks, and they're on their own after that. <laughs> You've just upset a few people there, Gordon. Yeah. Well, they'll get over it. They know what I'm talking about. <laughs> run a commercial herd, I suppose, a crossing to the Simmental rather than than the pures that would become your mainstay would it the, the more commercial side of it no no i was running i was running a purebred i was running red simmental up as an operation at the time okay. yes with a big staff we did everything horseback around 1400 head of cattle all around before the airport went in up here at kansas city okay. i had a lot of leased land that we run these cattle on and, and it was uh, we, we were having sales we, we did a good job and then the 80s hit Mm -hmm. And the 22, 18 to 22% uh, interest hit. Yeah. And uh, that that wasn't very nice. That's going to took care of the guys that were leveraged, I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. and, we uh, know a bit about that. I had Glenn Klippenstein on the, on the program there, and, and a similar thing that himself would be a similar time, I guess, as well. And Bob sort of explained it to me just how hard that 80s did hit the, uh, it hit the farming world. Oh, they're they're about neighbors, mm -hmm. Glenn and uh, Gordon. They're they're oh, yeah. very close well, to each other. Glenn's a good friend of mine. Oh yes, good. Yeah. I've known him forever. Mm -hmm. And Tom Smith. Burke too. Yep. Neighbor Tom Burks. Okay. So yeah, Tom Tom's very close neighbor too. I go by his place all the time, mm -hmm. and uh, he, Tom's done a great job in his business. And of course, the, I'm on the farm. Of course, that Tom worked at. I'm sitting in the same office as Tom used to sit in, J.B. McCorkle's office. Okay. Mr. McCorkle was a good friend of mine. Okay. Certainly, again, we, again, he's been discussed on, on this, this podcast in the past, but I wasn't aware mm -hmm. that uh, that was the same farm. And let's move on because the time's moving on a little bit there. You got into the, to make some extra money, I think you got into the sporting sporting clay business uh, mm -hmm. and setting up shoots. And, and is that something that sort of became a natural progression? At, um, or how did that work? Yeah, no, it was from a lack of money. Okay. Uh -huh. Very simple. I had to make money some other way than the cattle business at the time. I certainly had all the land. I had to, I had the know-how, but um, I, I had to make different arrangements. When the when the bottom fell out of the cattle business, we had to sell cattle, uh -huh. and uh, we were hooked up to the Continental Bank, Illinois. And um, when and when even it went down. Illinois with bankers, Stanley Harris, the Kickapoo Farms was a big banking operation, had his own block, Harris Trust Company, and um, and the Continental Bank ran an ad, said if you, this is prior to the wreck, of course, 
if your bank is not able to loan you a million dollars, come see me. <laughs> well, that was an ad in a farm journal. So the president of the Simtal Association, that I, the, the, of the, Simtal, the company I worked for, he was, he, he was a fairly good businessman, didn't know anything about cattle, but he knew how to borrow money. So away he went there, and he, he took him up on his offer. <laughs> but then when, it, when, when the rack hit, we were left little uh, back hey, can, can I explain a little little bit more on how that how that bad that got because we went from those interest rates and then there was these tax laws that really favored people rich people investing in these purebred cattle because they could write off everything and oh, in eighty six Reagan t- changed the tax laws considerably lowered them greatly and wiped out all these. All these write-offs, mm-hmm. and boy, then things we went out of those high interests, and then then all those tax write-offs, and boom, then things really tanked on the high dollar sure, cattle. Sure, yeah. and um, oh, no question, that was an internal thing that happened. It took so many of the rich people out of the out of the cattle business. It left more grassroots people that started from the bottom, and that's how I started. Mm-hmm. I said to myself, this is never going to happen to me again. I'm going to grow exactly as I can afford. Okay. And I started working my, my commercial operation and decided that that's the way I'm going to go because I'd shown enough, been traveled enough, didn't want to do that anymore. And, uh, and of course, the shooting thing, my, both my brothers were in the Scottish shooting team. Right. I was on, and I'd been, uh, I was on the American shooting team at the time, probably, and then I discovered there weren't any damn money on shooting. I just as well, uh, and I coached it for a while, international team, but I uh, decided to lay out some sporting play associations. Shooting became very popular here, but, and bloodless sport became quite popular, and uh, shooting was part of it. So I put in, I was doing very well in the sporting play courses, and if you look at my ad on that, I traveled from Alaska to Hawaii and put in courses everywhere. Okay, of, of sporting clays. Yes. Okay. My brother was my brother was a big clay pigeon. Shot of he shot for England, I think. And uh, yes, my father, brother, and my father were both into the sporting clay courses. And you're right. I suppose back in the we're talking late sixties, early seventies. My my father won any amount of, of competitions around and about the place there. But yeah, it was it became a big sport. No question, but there was no money in the shooting. There was a lot more money in setting up the course. Okay. <laughs> that suited me fine. Mm-hmm. And you'd run a commercial herd along alongside that, uh, um, and built that up to what sort of numbers were we, were we were we looking at when you built your commercial herd of cattle back up, uh, Gordon? Oh, I started slow, of course. I, I decided I'm not going to go to the bank and borrow money. I've just worked my way into it as I could handle the operation, and uh, we did. And it sent me the money from the shooting thing. I was doing enough that I could expand my cattle operation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it grew into about 600 head of cows, right. which we still have. Yeah, okay. We run at 600. I run about 600 head of cows on a, on a commercial operation right here. I have about 20, 30 purebreds that I use for raise my own bulls. I go outside and buy bulls from Dave Nichols up in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Simtall, half Simtall, uh, Simtall cross bulls usually get a little more stretch and size in the cattle. But I'm not very impressed with what the Angus cattle. Now, you've never asked me this, but when I did judge the tariff show about five, six years ago, um, I, was, <laughs> I couldn't believe the size they've got into the Angus cattle. And 
are in Britain. Unbelievable. Uh, the town of Tariff, small town that it is, would be the hotbed of most of the pedigree cattle in, in the country. A lot of them come out of that area. But you're right. Some of those, those Aberdeen cattle now, Angus cattle, have got themselves huge. And I think one or two are making a little bit of, to, to amend that uh, to bring them bring them down the way a little bit, Gordon. But you're right. There's some, some there's a lot of big cattle about that about there now, big Angus cattle. Oh, oh yes, it was. I, you know, as a commercial man now, grassroots operations, the cattle have to fit the environment, mm. and those cattle don't fit the environment without somebody bucking and feeding, mm. and that that's that's what you don't want. With corn in this country today, seven dollars a bushel. When I came here, it was a dollar a bushel, and you, <laughs> this is the first year I've never creep fed my calves, my fall calves. I run about three hundred spring calves and two hundred fall calves. And those fall calves came through the win- winter. The calves came through the winter this year with no creep feed. It's too expensive. Yeah. And I've actually started looking at because of my purebred Angus herd. I've started reducing the size of my cows a little bit because again they have to fit the environment, and they can't fit the environment with seven dollar corn. Well, it, they've got purely roughage consumers. Seven dollars just now, <laughs> but the way things are on our side of of, of Europe with wars and things going on there, that. Uh, and, and Ukraine being such a, a, a big supplier of grain in, into Europe, um, that, that price is only set to rise as and well. Fertilizer. And fertilizer. And yeah. fertilizer. Yeah. yeah. Fertilizer's crazy. And, and Gordon, you, and to make it clear, you're 83 years old, and you do this with one other person. You run 500 cows with one other person. Wow. Is you, that's well, it's, it's easy now, boys. I, before about 9 o'clock, you said we're going to get this uh, podcast done. I'd already fed 200 head of cows, and uh, it's so easy now uh, with the kind of equipment we have. We don't. I'm, I'm totally allergic to square bales. We do everything mechanically, and uh, it doesn't take long. Okay, and, and I believe you take in a, a lot of interns to help them get into the business. Uh, going again, a wonderful, a wonderful trait to put a bit back. That's my goal: is to start young guys, show them how to. Go to a bank and borrow money, get started. I make it easy for them. I don't charge them hardly anything for running their cows on my operation. I have a lot of land. I've got about between three and 4,000 acres of land that I own and lease. And um, I've started several young, maybe this would be my fourth or fifth one I've started along the way. He now has 50 head, and he's been with me a year. Okay. And uh, I don't have to pay them as much that way because things go up and down. Our cattle prices are not very good in this country at this point. I think we're looking at, a, you know, I've been there, I've been at this for 60 years in this country and I've seen two highs and they last about a week and a half. <laughs> well, Gordon, isn't it so important though? I mean, you are, are mentoring and you went through all the people that mentored you. I mean, can I mean, I just think of all the, all those names that, that mentored you. I mean, it's a, Who's who, and 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 now you're giving that back to other some other people, and that's a great great thing. Yes. Yeah, I like I like doing it, you know, because uh, it's so it was so hard for me to get started without having a father to move my my ranch, move you know inherit the ranch. I had to do it from purely out of my back pocket, and there's a hell of a difference between showing cattle for a rich man. And working for someone that's rich at signing the checks, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, the checks are your responsibility, and the feed is your responsibility. 
and the vet bills are your responsibility. And that's all the things I have to teach these young lads how to not spend money on anything else. Don't buy land and tie your investment, your money up in land and you can lease it. Mm-hmm. And I've leased, I've leased land for a, most of my operation has all been on leased land. Okay. And it works fine for me. That is, it is a brilliant thing, as you said, and the transition from um, pedigree stockmen working for for a, a wealthy outfit to running their own herd, which is obviously the, the, the way that you've, you've got to, is uh, it's, quite, it's quite a rare beast. That there aren't there aren't too many of those that uh, obviously Alex Og was one of those, but there aren't too many of those that uh, trans, transgressed from uh, um, from stockman to to breeder. I always say, if you, if you want to make a million dollars in the cattle business, start with two. <laughs> That's very helpful. Dave Nichols claims that I am one of half of a, half of one percent that survived and still in the cattle business after sixty years. I've known Dave for sixty years, yeah. and uh, that's what he always tells me. A great, a great mentor as well, and great advice. And, and David has been another one that's been on this program, and uh, we really enjoyed oh, having him on. As with yourself, Gordon, we've really enjoyed. Having you on, we've have you got a few more stories from us? Maybe back in in Scotland to some of our Scottish uh, Scottish people. I know you said you've been over shooting over here a few times, uh, Gordon. So tell us a bit about that, maybe. Well, yeah, uh, the Duke of Fife, the least the Duke of Fife, to stay one year to stay with my group. I take about take my family back every year. I can remember the year I judged the Tariff Show. I brought my whole family back there, and Alex Salmon was the number one guy at the time, mm-hmm. and of course he got his. He came to meet us all at the airport and got his got his picture with my hat on in the front page of the present journal. <laughs> he needed all the help he could he get. Did. I think. <laughs> he did. I don't show you helped him that well. He fell from favor just after that. But yeah. there you go. <laughs> can, can I can I ask a question? Yeah, exactly. Because you have a Gordon. You also have some beautiful art, the Highland art, too, don't you? With a, a, quite a collection. I mean, I, I I love livestock art and especially. 19th century livestock art. You you have a you've collected quite a quite a bit, haven't you? I do. I I've been in the sporting business all of my life, and um, if I see a good piece of art that I like, um, uh, I'm lucky enough to have quite a number of 1850s oil paintings, mm-hmm. uh, both of Highland cattle and of sporting events. That uh, anyway, but that's kind of a sideline that I was able to do and get and quite proud of them. I'd like to sell them all and just put what I get for them on the wall because I've looked at them for a hell of a long time. <laughs> I, think, I think the money would be better than looking at them anymore. <laughs> you, you, Gordon, you mentioned uh, you mentioned a name earlier on Blackwatch Farms, and I don't know if you know, but I wrote a book about uh, Jack Dick and his antics. In fact, Bob and I are going to do a podcast on him just shortly, and of course there's another man that appreciated his sporting art, mainly horses, I know, but I think he uh, they very nearly bankrolled him for what he needed by uh, surprise. Oh, yeah. Jack Jack was a character, of course. and He changed everything in Scotland when he started throwing that money around. And it was a shame. It was a bit of a Ponzi scheme, you know. It was a bit of a pyramid program he had invented. And those were, yeah, he, he had all these people in Scotland calling their bulls by Jewish names, if you remember. And uh, <laughs> it was really comical because they, they latched on real quick to the program. And I look back now and see a Bob animal. He come up with all those names where he's Jew this, Jew that, and they uh, they snapped him right up. <laughs> and uh, that the program initially was was not bad. I mean, you buy five. He sold five heifers for ten thousand dollars, and whatever the bull 
was he put with them. And uh, it started off then. And he only had about 50 clients total. And he got on a big board, you know, in, in the New York Stock Exchange. I can remember when it went down. That was amazing and a disaster for a while. But it's not unusual for when cattle are high and people get a program going to see crooks come out of the woodwork. I've seen it. And not just smart enough to follow what they do all the time, but it does still happen all the time. Certainly, he's an interesting example of that. And as I said, uh, Bob and myself will be discussing him in a, in a week or two there. And someone I found quite fascinating for all, all the wrong reasons, really. But uh, <laughs> in, interesting character. And I think we've taken enough of your time there, um, Gordon. I know you said you've been outfed a couple of hundred cows already this morning, an admirable effort for a man of, uh, of your years. But, um, but uh, I think we've... Well, I appreciate being on. Yeah, that, I thought I would just finish by by saying for any young lad that's listening, I said to myself, find a banker that understands cattle. Don't go don't go to a city banker because you don't know what the hell he's talking about. Find somebody that has a farm and has a few cattle, and he's a, also has a bank. <laughs> don't ever be afraid to fail. After the wreck of the eighties, I felt it would. I would never let that happen to me again. And, and only grow at the rate you can afford. Sure, sure. Wise words. Keep in mind keep in mind that everyone likes to eat beef. Yeah. That's the that's I can remember when I was judging the tariff show, I said, it's not hard to judge these cattle because they're all green. That's the that's what we're looking at. We're not looking at red, black, spotted or anything else. It's all about money. Mm -hmm. And if they don't make money for you, you shouldn't be in the business. Fair enough. I don't think that probably applies to everybody in the in the in the pedigree business, but uh, in the cattle business in general, that's, you couldn't get wiser words on that one. That's for sure. And it's and it's and you are, have also been a great example of who you surround yourself with is so important. Mm -hmm. And you've surrounded yourself with a bunch of great people. I think uh, Andy has. I sure try ha have uh, in my years, and boy, it makes all the difference. And Gosh, uh, you are, you just, you, you're the, one of the best examples of that I've ever seen of surrounding yourself with the right people. And that is a big part of being successful. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we've, okay. don't forget, I've got bulls for sale all the time. <laughs> Pure Brand Angus. Angus. All right. Well, that's really good, good. to hear from you, Gordon, right, and yeah. from you, Bob, as well, for, for coming in on this call, because I know you guys knew each other. It's been um, fascinating to hear that, to hear, you, to hear a story of a Scotsman who made his mark on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, you're a rare beast there, uh, Gordon. Yes, thanks very much. Well, it's been fun. Okay. Thank you for listening to this week's Top Lines and Tales podcast, again, kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition and nutritional advice and, and of course other agricultural inputs as well and during these uncertain times of spiraling input costs and volatile uh, markets uh, why not have a word with Harbro and discuss your feeding plans either directly with them or with your local representative who of course can be found on harbro.co.uk's webpage or on social media such as Facebook and others. And you can, of course, find Top Lines and Tales on social media, on, on Facebook, uh, Twitter and various other places. And on Facebook you will find some photographs, hopefully to back up this and other episodes. <laughs>